0: I will be reading uh, Revelation, uh, in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. If you would like to open your books and follow along. I, John to Ephesus and uh, Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven gold lampstands. And in the midst of the lamp stands one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write those that are, and those that you have, that you are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of God.
1: Good job, Bo. Most people, most people do not know how to pronounce Laodicea, so it was great. <clears throat> I've got two quick. Um, by the way, my name is Mike Fay, <clears throat> and I'm the lead pastor here, one of the elders. And I just have two quick kind of announcements that I want to put out there, reminders, and one is a reminder, one is a plea. And the first is that um, we've been partnering with uh, the Prairie Baptist Church out in Prairie City the past couple months, and just helping them uh, fill the pulpit over the course of months as they've had the course of months as they've had need. And uh, this morning, A.J. Myers and his wife, Liz, are out there, and he's uh, preaching out in Prairie City. So if you think to pray for him, we'll pray for him in just a moment, and for that church as well. They had a pastoral candidate come out the last couple weeks and preach for them, and they're hoping that that is successful, and we just want to pray that God would guide them in that. It's been a good partnership in that way. I know those who have gone out have been blessed, and I know the Prairie City Church has been blessed by their presence as well. So we're just grateful that God's allowed us to do that. The, uh, the second thing I want to mention is just a plea uh, and a request for all the men in the room. If you're a man and you consider yourself to be part of First Baptist Church and you have never participated in the War Council, I want to plead with you to prayerfully consider being part of the War Council in 2024. This is an opportunity for you to invest in relationship with other men, uh, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And that's what we try to do in the War Council. And it's, it's intensive. It is a big commitment. But the reward is worth it. And so if you have any questions about the War Council, if you wonder what God is telling you, come talk to me and I'll let you know. Um, talk to Jacob Sheridan, one of the uh, leaders of the men's team. You can talk to any of the elders. And we'd love to give you more information, answer questions about that. Uh, any concerns that you might have, but I really want you to talk to God and ask him what he would have you do this next year, and I think there's probably more of you that he's he's saying yes to than he's saying no to, so I'll just leave it at that, and if you pray with me, we'll get into the word. Our Father, we are grateful that you have sent your son Jesus, that he became a human, he became a, a boy child, a baby, wrapped in swaddling cloth, crying, um, nursing, um, pooping, all the things that babies do. And uh, we are grateful that you humbled yourself. You came outside of heaven, and you did that so that we could be brought in. And we are eternally grateful for that. And this morning, Lord, as uh, AJ opens your word out in Prairie City, I pray that his word, your word to them, would be a blessing through him, and that they would bless him as well. We pray for wisdom and guidance. We pray that your will would be done as they discern um, if this man and his family are to come and be part of of their church there and lead that body and we pray God that your will would be done bless them and Lord I also pray for all the men in the room pray that you would lead and guide and that you would uh, engage um, those men to come and be with us this year walk through this war council as we seek to to love you and love each other and and become the leaders leaders of ourselves and leaders of our home and leaders of the church Uh, that you desire for us to be as men. Lord, would you do your work there? And we give this time to you, and we just ask and invite you to come and speak to us this morning from your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we are going to be in the book of Revelation, but we'll be in chapter three for the most part this morning. Um, And as always, during this time of Advent, our focus is rightly on Jesus. And in particular, during this Advent season, We're looking at the fulfillment, or Jesus' fulfillment, the way that he fulfilled some of the Old Testament hopes, which are articulated in the various titles that we find in this old hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And today we consider this stanza that we sung earlier this morning, O come, thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home, make safe the way that leads on high. And I think you have to have some sort of accent to do this right. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. I don't know, is it British or is it Scottish? Make safe the way that leads on he and close the path to misery. Is that right? Anyway, you get, you get the point. We're trying to rhyme, but we can't. We just can't make it happen. So the theme for this morning, the key of David, opening our heavenly home. It actually reminds me of, the, of one time that Carrie and I, I think I've told this story before, so forgive me if you've heard it before. I just have a small... Uh, a small package of stories that I can share. There's like four of them. have to recycle them. It uh, <laughs> reminds me of, of one time that Carrie and I, this was back when we lived in Southern California, and I think we just had Emma, and Emma was little, like little, little. Maybe even in a car seat, little. And some friends of ours had family who had a beach house down in Laguna Beach, which was um, just one of our favorite places to be really nice, really bougie neighborhood. Okay, And it was, um, it was this really nice beach house. And they gave it was kind of last minute. And I went and picked up the keys from my buddy. And he said, go enjoy yourself. I think it was a Friday night. We're heading down there late after work. It's about an hour through traffic. All the way down to the beach house. And you know how it is when you drive. And you probably uh, you know, drank too much water ahead of time. And you're about you know, 40 minutes in. You're like, wow, I've really got to use the restroom. And you drive and drive. And you're in traffic. You're like, come on, traffic. Let's just get there. You, you guys with me with the feeling here of, you know, feeling like you're about to burst. okay? And we get there, we, you know, we're following, and I think we had actually a paper map, like we had to find this place on a paper map before Google Maps. And we drive up this really, really nice neighborhood, this nice little beach house at the end there, and we pull up, we get, okay, this is the right place, right address, I get out. And it's one of those moments where you're like, I'm not talking to you, get out of my way, just let me get through the door, and then in about three minutes we'll be good, right? And so, Um, I make my way up to the door. I've got the keys. Carrie and Emma are in the car, and I'm trying the keys, and they are not working. And there's a couple of us, so try them a couple times. Okay, this, you know, and, and you know how it is when you have keys and they don't work, you try them all 10 times, right, just to make sure. Did I do it right? Did I wiggle it right? Am I not doing something? Pushing on the door, pulling on the door, going around the house to see if there's another door that maybe these keys work on. Well, the keys just did not work. And with every moment, it's more and more pain and discomfort. You know, you can hardly stand up straight. And it's, it's a neighborhood that there's no other alternatives for places to go, right? So eventually we all get back in the car and we make our way down to a restaurant. And I'm, you know, able to, to, to feel a little bit better a few minutes later. And we actually had to drive all the way home that night. It was too late to go get the keys from him. Spent the night home. We're, we're able to spend the weekend there. But you know what I mean, though. You felt that way. And I'm not saying like your bladder's about to explode, but like you've been locked out of something, you ever felt that way, like you're on the outside and you just can't get in. The thing that you want or need, the thing you desire is just over there, just right on the other side of the fence, on the other side of the door, but you can't get to it. The way is shut. Right? You're an outsider. What's that? It's a, it's a bad dream, yeah. You're standing at the window, you're, you're looking in at somebody having this sumptuous feast, you're starving, Let nobody, but nobody will let you in to participate and to be part. I remember feeling this way as a kid growing up in public school in elementary school in middle school and high school, navigating the social circles of a public school, wanting to be the popular kid, but never quite making it into that inner circle. Uh, That's the same kind of feeling that I'm talking about. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, talked a lot about this happening, or this longing to be on the inside. And here's what he said in one of his essays. He said, apparently then, our our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, our longing to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fantasy or fancy but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. And I think to get to the root of it, we really have to go back to the very beginning. To God's creation of the world, and in particular, his creation of mankind out of the dust of the earth, made in his image. God breathes in the, in the nostrils of the man. He becomes a living being, and he's there to represent God. And, and we read this account of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 being placed in this idyllic setting of Eden where, where there was no sin. There was no suffering, there was no pain. All their needs were met and they walked with God. They walked and talked with God. And Lewis points out that we, when we hear this story, when we think of that garden, we, we feel a tinge of desire, we want to be there, we feel a tinge of nostalgia too, like, I think I kind of remember that or I should know something about that because we're made in his image. And sometimes, though, we think about it, and it's, it's kind of mixed with cynicism. Like, yeah, right, that's never going to, that was never a real place. That's not really going to happen. Maybe, maybe we're just jealous. Eden is the, the perfect picture of what it means to be on the inside, right? To be where we want to be, to be part of the inner circle, to be welcome, to be, to be safe, to be home. But we know the story, right? Genesis 3 always happens. No matter how many times you read through the Bible, Genesis 3 is still there. And Adam and Eve in that story disobey one of God's one commandment. The one commandment he gives them, they break. And the worst thing that possibly could have happened did. Listen to these words from the end of Genesis chapter 3. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, And now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore, it says, the Lord God sent him, sent Adam, out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, an angelic spiritual being, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And when you think about that picture, it's like the ultimate keep out sign. No trespassing. Intruders will be shot, right? That God sets up at the the boundaries of Eden. And if this story doesn't strike a mournful chord for you, I'm not sure what will. Because if you're like me, you know what it means to, or what it feels like to feel left out. To be cast out to be a foreigner, a stranger, feel like a stranger in, in the world, in your own home, in your own body even. This is why we feel that way, because of this story. Our entire lives have been lived east of Eden as exiles. We've been left out. We've been placed on the outside, and all that we want is to get back in. And history has been little more than countless human attempts to get back into Eden. Whether we want to take Eden by force or try to make it happen through social programs or political engineering. Or simply by building our own kingdom. This is what we like to do as Americans. We build our own kingdom of comfort and safety, security. We build our own little Edens and try to make this happen again. But we can't get back in. And in the end, Jesus even speaks of this hell itself is a place outside the gates. It's the ultimate outside place where this feeling of exclusion will last forever. But thankfully, that's not the only story. The only story isn't just us trying to get back in. There's another story that, that, that works out in history and in the scriptures, and it's God's story of providing a way for us to once again gain access to Eden, to once again be on the inside. And that story comes to focus in Genesis 12, when, when a man named Abram, who is later called Abraham, In his family, when God comes to them and God makes a promise to Abram that one day, through his working in them, Abram would have a descendant who would be the one to open that way back into Eden. And this would be the case not just for Abram's family, but eventually for every family of the earth, for the entire world. And so, the story of the Old Testament is the story of God's people eventually called Israel experiencing, if you will, a taste, but never, never the fullness of Eden. And sadly, Israel constantly disobeyed God. They were constantly turning their backs on him. They were constantly trying to find their own way back into Eden by, by following false gods or trying to be like the nations around them, trying to, trying to build their own Eden so they could get, on the, get back on the inside and always by their own power. But God was always faithful to them despite their unfaithfulness. And he continued to promise that one day a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of Abraham's descendant, King David, would come to restore what was lost, to to open a door, to grant access to what was closed. So we started at Genesis. Let's go to Revelation now, the very end of the story and it's the, the coming king, the Messiah, Jesus, that, that we celebrate at Advent, right? The one who came, who came as a baby. That's what we remember at Advent, God coming as a human. But, but Advent is also a time for us to remember, to look forward to Jesus' future Advent, his future arrival. And that's why we turn to the book of Revelation as our text today. And a few minutes ago, you, you heard Bo share with us, from Revelation chapter 1, a very different Jesus than the one that Mary wrapped up in swaddling cloths and, and laid in a manger. This is a very different picture of Jesus. If, G, this Jesus would have, uh, if she would have given birth to J, this Jesus, she probably would have had a heart attack and died. Okay? Here we have the risen And exalted Jesus, who's walking, it says, amongst the lampstands, amongst his churches, speaking with his churches, exhorting them, encouraging his people. We see Jesus, our great high priest, both the Son of Man and the Son of God, pure and holy, with soul-penetrating eyes of flame hair as white as snow, feet of burnished bronze that exude the strength of his kingship and his kingdom, a voice like myriad waterfalls, and his word like that of a two-edged sword. This is the risen Christ whose, whose face shines upon us with the blessing of a thousand suns. And here we have the Alpha and the Omega, the first. And the last, the conqueror of death. I love that picture of Jesus. And the book of Revelation, which was recorded and written by the, the Apostle John, who was exiled on this little island off the coast of Asia Minor, this book was an apocalyptic encouragement to these seven churches. And You can kind of see them there on the map. These seven churches in, in Asia Minor, in ancient Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. And these churches were basically churches that John was a pastor to. And John was kind of the last apostle left. He was really old. He was one that walked with Jesus. And these churches, as he's been exiled from them, they're undergoing severe suffering, persecution. And in that, because of that persecution, they're constantly tempted to abandon their faith. To abandon Jesus and and adopt an easier life. And so, John sends them this letter, this vision that Jesus gives him. And the first thing that John does in this, the first thing that Jesus gives him is, is a reminder of who Jesus is. A reminder of the Savior, the God that they serve. And, and this of course, this is the same kind of encouragement that we need today, right? That we need every day to remember who Jesus is, who who we've placed our faith and our trust in, the one who's given us life. So after chapter one, after this introduction to Jesus, chapters two and three include seven letters, one to each of these different churches. And today we're going to focus on just one of these churches, the gathering of believers in ancient Philadelphia. So chapter three, Revelation chapter three, starting at verse seven. Jesus says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write... The words of the Holy One, the true One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we're not going to be able to cover all that today, but Jesus does say in there that he has the key of David. Jesus is never in Scripture, by the way, called the key of David. He has the key of David. It's something that's in his possession that he used. But what what does that mean, that Jesus has the key of David? Well, there's one other reference in all of Scripture to this key of David, and it comes from the prophet Isaiah. And in this passage in Isaiah chapter 22, Isaiah, God, is, is describing, God through Isaiah, is describing the steward of the royal house of King Hezekiah, who was... King Hezekiah was a descendant of King David in Judah. And here's what is said in Isaiah 22, starting at verse 20. It says, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. Does that sound familiar? And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. Okay, so this random text out of Isaiah 22, and then John takes it and goes like, boom, that's Jesus, that's Jesus right there. It's a pointer to Jesus, but here's the idea. The royal steward, the, the steward of the household of the king, seemed to have several responsibilities, including oversight of the king's household. But, but also, they, they may have had even more authority that, than that, maybe even political or royal authority. So you might think of them as, as kind of like a chief of staff or, or a secretary of state. And the royal steward, as described here, would have had keys, and probably keys to the royal palace. And they would have been attached to the shoulder of their uniform. So it says that he had the key on his shoulder. He had it connected to the key on his shoulder. And they would, they would be basically the keys to the whole palace. It's like a glorified janitor, if you will. Okay, And they had all of this authority to open and to close. And, and the keys were a tool. They could use them to open and close. But they're also a symbol of their authority in the kingdom. He could gain or refuse or people could gain or refuse, he could refuse entrance to whomever he wanted. So it's like he had keys to the front door, and if there were enemies at the gate, he could shut the door and leave them out. But if there were friends or family at the gate, he could open the door and let them in. And what he opened stayed open, what he shut stayed shut. His word was irrevocable law, at least in his domain. So we take that, we fast forward to Revelation, and and Jesus is saying, look, that was a picture of me, That that was a pointer to me, because Jesus is, of course, the perfect royal steward. He has authority and dominion over God's kingdom, and whoever he lets in is in, and whoever he locks out is out. Jesus, the holy and true one, has the final word on the matters of the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is here saying to this beleaguered little church in this place called Philadelphia in Asia Minor in the first century is this. I have opened the door of the kingdom to you. And no one can shut it. Because apparently some were trying to do that very thing. And Jesus here calls these pretenders in in Revelation 3, calls them the synagogue of Satan. Who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. We don't know much about these people, but they're either Orthodox Jews who don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, so they're telling these Christians, "Hey, you, you aren't in the kingdom. You don't follow the law or the Torah." They could have been Christians who were telling other Christians, teaching other Christians, "Look, you have to follow all the laws of Moses in order to become a Christian." We don't know which of those groups it was, but it was it was someone who was telling this church, "You haven't done enough to get into the kingdom. The door isn't open to you until you do X, Y, and Z." But Jesus would have none of that. He does not have patience for those who try to block entrance to the door of the kingdom that he has opened through his death and through his resurrection. And because of the work that Jesus came to do, by becoming a baby, by living a perfect life, growing into a man, dying in our place for our sins on the cross, and not staying dead, but coming back to life, because of that work, the key of David has been given to him, and he has used it to open up the kingdom to any outsider who would simply put their faith in him. Jesus is the only one, friends. Jesus is the only one who can give us what we really want, which is to be in. And by simply placing our faith in him, we can finally be on the inside. And I love what Jesus says beautifully in verse 8. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. We see that door again in chapter four, verse one. There's a door standing open in heaven. And the implication is that those who belong to Jesus will walk through that door into the kingdom. Jesus lets us in. But he doesn't stop there. And I think when we enter the kingdom, when we enter through the door that Jesus opens, we should be blown away by what we find on the other side. Because Jesus doesn't just let us in. He welcomes us with open arms and hospitality. He sets a seat for us at his table. And one of Jesus' parables actually gives us more insight into what a royal steward or a household steward actually did. I want to look at just a couple verses real quick in Matthew 24. And Jesus said the, the parable doesn't address what we're talking about here, but this picture is helpful. He says, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household? This is the steward of the house, right? This is what Eliakim would have been. This is who Jesus is. Then he says, here's what they do. To give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So so the job of the steward, the job of the keeper of the keys, isn't just to lock and unlock the front door so people can get in and out. He's also got a key to the pantry. He's got a key that open up and feed us and give us the food we need. His job is to care and provide for the entire household. That includes entry, it includes protection, allowing friends in, keeping enemies out. But it doesn't stop there. The, the steward is responsible for feeding the entire household. So Jesus doesn't just open up the kingdom as the bearer of the, king, the, the keys of David. He's also the faithful and wise servant who feeds and nourishes and cares for his household. The thing about Jesus is he doesn't just throw crumbs at people. Here, have a few crumbs. Eat them off the floor. He sets a feast before his guests. He spreads it out before them. I I love the picture. If if you go from one end of Revelation to the other, in Revelation chapter 4, here's the open door. Go through it. You get to the other end of Revelation, Revelation chapter 19, and the angel says to John, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to what? To the marriage supper of the Lamb. How does the book end? It ends at a feast. Jesus invites us in. He feeds us. He welcomes us. He serves us as we enjoy his kingdom at the table with him. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 12 of Revelation 3. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Have you ever heard the expression, speaking of someone, they're like part of the furniture here? heard that before I use it for like someone who's just in a place or so their presence is so regular and expected in a certain place that they've been there so long that they've just become like part of the environment they've become part of the furniture I think I don't know if you ever watched the old sitcom Cheers from the 80s but Norm remember Norm and Cheers was the place where everybody knew your name right and that's the point of the show this is Eden everybody knows your name And Norm was the ultimate insider, right? He would walk into the the bar, and what would happen? Everybody would say, Norm, right? And he would say, hey, everybody. And then he'd go straight to his seat, which he was always in. And if he wasn't in his seat, it was almost disturbing, right? He'd become part of the furniture. That's That's the idea. And the picture we have here is similar but deeper. Jesus, who has the key of David, is not only letting us into the house. He's not only spreading a feast before us when we get there. But he's including us as integral fixtures of his kingdom. We're part of the furniture. You will be a pillar in the temple of my God. So the Bible tells us that we'll not only be with Jesus, but we will rule with him. Paul says that we'll even judge angels. We are given authority and responsibility in the kingdom when we become his children. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, paints a really similar picture. And it begins, interestingly enough, with how we used to be outsiders. He says this, starting at verse 13. Remember that you, and he's speaking of Gentiles here, which is most of us, all of us probably, Gentiles, those who are not of the line of Israel or Jews, remember that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were on the outside. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You were on the outside. You had no hope. You were on the outside. You were without God in the world. You were as outside as outside can get. But now, he says, we're on the inside. Not only that, but we're part of the furniture. We're part of the architecture of Jesus' kingdom. Listen to this. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. And he's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're not on the outside anymore. We're on the inside. We're part of the family. Check this out. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And I will make you pillars. In the temple of my God, you'll be part of the furniture, you'll be part of the architecture, you'll be part of everything in my kingdom. And you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This to me is nothing short of incredible. I, mean, I can't even imagine what it, what it means and what it's going to look like. We can only understand it in symbols. But the reality is going to be so much better. We who were the ultimate outsiders, whose lives were once given over to simply trying to scrap our way back into Eden, have now been given free access. Behold an open door. We've been invited into the wedding feast. We're not outsiders. We're not strangers. We're not aliens or exiles anymore. Now in Christ, we are family. But that's not the end of it. There's even more. Jesus says one more crucial thing, and he says that he will write his name on us. I'm reminded of the Toy Story movies, right? How the kid, Andy, would take his favorite toys and he'd write his name on the bottom of their feet, and, and that was an expression of his love for these toys. He valued them, he cared for them, but ultimately, he owned them. They were his And this is what Jesus does with us. He expresses his love, his value, his care for, his ownership of us by writing his name on us forever, by looking to us and saying, you are mine. Amen. So perhaps you're here this morning and you feel like you've spent your entire life like an outsider. And perhaps today is the last day that you will be one. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, if you've never turned away from all your kingdom and all your plans and all your rebellion in order to get yourself back to Eden, if you've never given him allegiance, then why not accept his invitation? You will not be able to open the door by yourself. He's the only one who can open it for you. He's opened the door. He's given you access. The question is, will you enter? Will you turn from trying to make your own Eden and trust him to open the door for you? See, when Jesus was born, the ultimate insider, and he was in the throne room of God, he was God himself, the ultimate insider made himself an outsider so that we could become insiders. And for those who have walked through the door Jesus has opened, Here's again what C.S. Lewis had to say. To be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. So let's do the only thing that really makes sense. Let's worship. Let's praise our Savior for letting us in, for feeding us, for including us In his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are so grateful that you have the key of David. That you died and now you are alive. And you hold in your hand the key of death and Hades. You have overcome death so that we might too. And you have opened a door into the kingdom. Opened a way back to the Father. Back to right relationship with you. Back to restoring us to what we were made to be. And Father, I just pray that everyone in this room today would see clearly the open door that you have given and see that it's just by faith that we walk through. Just by trusting that even though we're sinners, you are the forgiver of sinners. And that through your death on our behalf, you, you, you were a sacrifice to cover our sins. You paid the price for us. So Father, if there's any in this room who have not placed their faith in you, have not come to you, accepted this free gift who have not come through that door. Lord, I pray that now would be the day of salvation. Holy Spirit, that you would work in their hearts, convict, repent, cause repentance and belief and faith. And Lord, today, there's nothing I want to do now but worship. As I think of you, Jesus, who've done so much for us to bring us in, to feed us, to nourish us, to celebrate with us, and to invite us into your kingdom to be part of the furniture, to be part of the architecture, to be part of what you are doing in this world both now and forevermore. We pray this in the name of Jesus for his glory, amen.